Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Greetings, comrades, and today I have a treat for you. It's a special one. Uh, I haven't speaking about our independent struggles before in the age of uh, Atmode, reawakening, but right now I'm interviewing a person who was directly involved in these events straight from the top up. A person who was personally voting for independence and then, you know, very responsible for running the country in the early years. Mr. Edmunds Krastinch. So, hello, Edmunds. Hello. It's an honor to be here. And the first question is, so, we all know about, like, all the hopes and dreams that every common Latvian had at the time, that, you know, we wanted our own independence, uh, and, but we really didn't know what independence actually looked like and what capitalism was. You were in our higher council, so I guess you must have had some view on what's going to happen next. What were you thinking would, would happen after we, we had gained independence? And also, well, if you could, in short, explain how you managed to get in this voting organ, this higher council. Yeah, it's um, all started, I think, gradually with uh, Gorbachev's uh, glasnost policy. Uh, and glasnost policy actually started from that, that uh, Gorbachev could not uh, successfully realize economic reforms. Uh, here was quite resistance in higher echelons of uh, Soviet Union. And instead of this, he went uh, some uh, way which he called glasnost or democratization. So that uh, little bit of uh, press freedom uh, was allowed. And so people started to try what is uh, now this... Uh, Barrier, how far you can go, what you can tell. It started first from Moscow and then, then in Baltic republics, people feeling that now it's a little bit uh, more free. They started to talk, sta started uh, different initiatives. Um, uh, they started to, to talk about independence before 1940 and it started around 1987 uh, when first. Uh, independent Latvia flags uh, you could see on, on streets. And then, after one year, uh, 
uh, here came idea. Possibly it was initiated by some uh, communist party ideologues to involve people into this democratization process, which they wanted to control and move in a direction which they thought they would like to move Soviet Union. Uh, to found such an organization as People's Front. So, at summer of uh, 1988, uh, here started to pop up kind of initiative groups in uh, all places in Latvia. And I was working uh, outside of Riga, some uh, 120 kilometers uh, to north, uh, closer to border with Estonia. I was a, a programmer, computer scientist in uh, one uh, town. And, and uh, already before I was interested in different uh, political things and, uh, and um, history, but uh, I was uh, I, I didn't like all this uh, communist party ideology and uh, how they uh, controlled things and limited things and uh, didn't allow people to do everything. And I felt that I I, I how to make this uh, uh, People's Front initiative group in my workplace. So I did this. I organized this. And then, uh, some way, people choose me to go to this uh, founding congress of uh, People's Front. I went here, and uh, at that time, I, I, I changed my workplace. I, I started uh, postgraduate studies, and I had, had more free time. And in 1989, I was uh, partly postgraduate studies, and uh, partly I was like uh, this new movement's political activist. I organized things. First, uh, we went for municipal elections in 1989, won these elections. I was elected in, in district, uh, district council as a member of this council. And then came, uh, in 1990, came uh, elections to Supreme Council, which was in formal Soviet structure, highest uh, legislative organ in the uh, in uh, Soviet Latvia, of course. Yeah, another question about that. Uh, were there any campaigns, like you had your people's movement, and then there were the Communist Party. Were there any yeah. campaign yeah. slogans? How, how did the campaigns for that looking like? Yeah, yeah. it was actually first such a time when this campaign, after something like uh, 50, 60 years, happened in Latvia, and people didn't have much experience, and uh, still uh, all this uh, interchange with the Western world was quite limited. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, People's uh, Front uh, had this campaign, we had uh, flyers, uh, we tried to, to get our message through mass media, which were not so strictly co controlled already, and many people in mass media sympathized to uh, People's Front. But as well here was a communist party, this Latvian part of communist party, so to say, uh, progressive communist party. And then this interfront uh, part, uh, uh, which was strongly conservative communists. And then uh, agriculturists. So it already started to split in different movements. But still, the uh, main question was for independence or against it. And people voted in this way uh, in Latvia. If you said that you are for independence, you could get uh, 
almost all Latvians support. If you voted against, then you didn't get this support. Uh, maybe you get support from uh, Russians uh -huh. or people who came uh, here after occupation, migrants. So, and uh, in, s in some incidental way, I was uh, as well moved to uh, participate in this election against one of the cooperative uh, cooperatives uh, director, kolkhoz director. Wow. In, in, you know, agricultural region, I was not agriculturist, <laughs> but I won because I was from People's Front. Oh, nice. Um, another thing, I have explained to my listeners already all the story about the Baltic Way and the mass demonstration that happened in, in mesh parks. But then when it comes to voting itself, what was the feeling in the hall? I guess that's the, that's the question that gets asked to everyone who voted that day. But did you, did you, was there any debate? Were, were there arguments? How, how did the whole process of voting for independence go down? Like, what was the feeling back then? You mean in Supreme Council? Yeah, yeah. In Supreme Council, it was uh, mainly uh, speeches about uh, from one side and from another side. Uh, of course, uh, People's Front told that uh, we how to vote for this, but this was still not full. We, we understood that it's not full independence. It was still Soviet Union, and the situation was quite unclear. It was like a declaration for independence, for uh, or will to be independent. But still, we explained everything why we want this, that we were independent uh, country before 1940 when, we, when Latvia was occupied, and th that we want to be independent and go our own way. And uh, those who were against, uh, mostly communists, they explained that they want to stay in Soviet Union, it, it will be better, it's big country, big market, you know, if we speak about economics and what such a small Latvia could do outside of big, uh, you know, Soviet Union, which will now will de develop very, very successfully, as they thought. So this was an issue, how to do this. And after we voted, it was not real independence. It was still for more than one year, it was kind of two governments in Latvia. Our local government, which controlled part of things, and still control from Moscow, from Soviet Union structures and organizations. And it, this continued uh, till 1991 August, when this uh, putsch in Moscow was done and when Yeltsin won. So it was in Moscow when Yeltsin finally signed the document, which was, how was it, the, the formation of the SNG countries, I suppose, independent nation states which dissolved the Soviet Union. That, that's the official date when we should actually celebrate. Yeah, yeah. But we do celebrate it here on the 4th of May just because you voted, and I guess. Yeah, well, everyone, well, everyone who voted yes on that day is, you know, a national hero. That is why I'm very, very happy to be here. <laughs> but it was fine. But then, you know, um, and yeah, I, I've also watched the... There's a movie uh, called Saturta My Republic, of course, because I'm a historian. And then there's this whole story when I was very young about like the crazy 90s and how privatization happened and how everything went rampant. And I had kind of tried to explain to people that, that it was because a lot of people didn't even know how this whole capitalism system worked. And uh, at, at one point you must have gotten involved. You later on went to be our minister of finances too here in Latvia. So... 
How was it? How was it like to try to control this whole mess which suddenly appeared? Like all these random random kolhos building up a corporation, some criminal activity going here and there. Like you were in a position of power. How do you how do you operate politically in such a chaos? And how do you evaluate how what, how well did you do? Here was um, after we gained real independence, 1991 in September. Here was some interim period when still the Supreme Council operated. It was 92 and uh, till mid of 93. And what we did as a parliament, we tried to make a framework uh, where uh, economy could uh, operate and, and where everything could operate. We started to make new laws which are needed for uh, a market economy to, to function, like we renewed civil code because in Soviet times here was not such a civil code because private property was almost non-existent. Uh, commercial code, everything was uh, from a scratch. So actually one and a half years parliament just uh, worked making those, uh, this framework where uh, economy could operate. And telling people that just start your business, try to find what you can do. Uh, especially after we introduced our own uh, currency in 92, here was real cut of uh, links with former Soviet Union. Because then our money started to appreciate because we controlled inflation. But in the Soviet Union, uh, money was still, you know, emitted a lot and lot. And here was high inflation from one side from another side uh, in soviet union prices were not real you got uh, supplies from somewhere metal or oil by some artificial prices and now everybody started to charge real prices that was a real shock for uh, industry which operated in latvia so quick privatization was needed because uh, government could not control uh, thousand uh, industrial companies, which actually most of them were made to work for Soviet Union market. Uh, here were uh, factories which produced just military equipment. Yeah, I, I, I've read in the archives that uh, Latvia and Baltics in general were among the donor countries for the whole Soviet Union, that up to 16% of our GDP uh, went away to support other other Soviet republics, and that's not even counting how much we actually spent on supplying the unnecessary army bases here. Mm. So I don't know. There is a myth that um, that's very widespread, even even among uh, Russians, whom I consider my friends. We have one. He doesn't listen to the podcast, though. But hello, Nick. <laughs> uh, he basically holds this opinion that. You know that the Soviet Union like built all all this industry up here for Latvia, so it kind of helped us develop and gave us all these workplaces. And that during this uh, kind of independence, gaining independence period, that we tore tore all it, all of this down. The same view, by the way, is held by our a lot of our own sort of I say ultra far right wing people who kind of mourn the loss of, of uh, VEF, I think, and Rigis Radio, Rupnitsa, I, I, I don't even know. But, but yeah, they made military parts for military things, I think. And uh, like I've heard stories that, for example, in Valmiera, 
uh, in Valmier where we had this meat, uh, meat producing plant which made sausages and, and packed meats that even though the meat was like produced and made right, right there in these products, the people just didn't even see the products, they were just shipped away already. So, so yeah, what was the situation with all this industry? And how would you answer to these people who say that, look, Soviet Union built all this stuff up for you? Well, did we actually benefit from this? Because according to pure statistic data, and that's Soviet statistics, which I looked up in the archives, 16%, like almost one-sixth of our economy, everything our economy produced, was sent to support other republics. And of the remaining part, about 20% went to support the Soviet army. So it's like 36% of our total GDP went for, you know, people who weren't citizens of Latvia, who had actually nothing to do with our, our, own, our own things, really. From the economical perspective, that, 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 that is, at least. Yeah, it's not so simple thing. Uh, people like to simplify, to make their cases more persuasive. Uh, in every centralized country, you have some distribution mechanisms for, from uh, places which are richer to places which are poorer. Uh, of course, Baltic republics were richer places in Soviet Union, so here should be some distribution like to Central Asia, where people were much, much poorer. And, uh, of course, uh, Soviet Union was a highly militarized uh, country, so it's because of Cold War. That was a bad thing, but that was it. Every part of Soviet Union paid this, how to say, part of the GDP for uh, military, for this paranoid, uh, paranoidical uh, sense of uh, that you are like fortress, you have to defend yourself. So that our listeners wouldn't bomb us, because I, yeah. I, I have to know that the, <laughs> according to, like, I, I have this survey and a lot of our listeners are military or ex-military, so hey. <laughs> no, no, but you know, you, 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 can, uh, you can understand this, they can bomb us, we want to, you know, counter, but uh, this paranoia was so far that as you know, all the seashore of Latvia was inaccessible for, uh, for uh, common people. Only with permits you can travel here, because here was such a paranoia that, you know, some people from outside of Latvia, some capitalists will come, you know, make a propaganda, spoil all our minds of uh, builders of communism. Then about industry. If Latvia would continue to be independent country after uh, war, Second World War, uh, and trade with other nations freely and free uh, market way, we would build different factories. We, we would not build such a factories which were built in Soviet times. Those factories were, were built not for Latvia, but for Soviet Union, for needs of Soviet Union, like WEF for radio technic or commutators who made... Uh, um, highly needed uh, electronical equipment for Soviet needs. <laughs> when Soviet Union ceased to exist, nobody wanted this, uh, you know, th those electronics. Nobody needed them. And uh, maybe some, you know, consumer goods, which were made in WEF, like uh, radio receivers, amplifiers, etc. They were much uh, poorer qualities than what was made in Japan, for example. So they were not competitive. That was the reason why most, uh, most uh, largest part of uh, this industry ceased to exist after uh, 
breakup of uh, Soviet Union because it, it existed only for Soviet Union needs with distorted prices. Of course, you could solve this, uh, for example, this problem with meat uh, products mm -hmm. which were sent. Just make uh, right price, uh, balance supply and demand. But Gorbachev didn't uh, want to go for this. He wanted to control prices to pe for people to be happy with low prices. Uh, and in result, you got uh, empty shelves. Yeah. About Gorbachev, I also, in my childhood, I was often told that Gorbachev, uh, by allowing for all of this to happen, that he was somehow a good guy. But then I grew up and learned about both Chernobyl and, and like what happened in Vilnius. And it's like, well... Gorbachev was an idealist in my mind. I think he really believed in, in communism. And um, I had read his book, which was really interesting, was called uh, Perestroika and the New Communist Way of Thinking. It was in Latvian, printed in 1987, I presume, where he, where he nicely speaks, like a whole chapter is devoted to how the Soviet Union shall try to cooperate with America, but how, like, for example, the, the separation of Germany is now a solid fact, which will go into the 21st century. These, these aspects change a lot, but, but Gorbachev, I don't know, um, I would state that Gorbachev was, in a way, uh, the most kind of democratic leader that, that, Soviet, that, that Soviet Russia, and let's, let's increase this a bit, up to this day to modern Russia ever had. Because I think Yeltsin was not much of a leader at all. Well, except his early years, but, but all this shift kind of started. So what are your opinions on Gorbachev? Maybe I'm wrong here, but it's just... Yeah, my are... opinions are complicated <laughs> on, on him. <laughs> we, we are happy that the uh, Communist Party of Soviet Union chose him as a leader uh, after Brezhnev stagnation period and two... Uh, short-living uh, leaders of Communist Party because he started processes which he could not control later and which uh, gave us independence. Mm -hmm. uh, could he be more successful in sense that uh, to keep uh, Soviet Union together and uh, go some kind of China way, modernizing uh, economy and uh, making better living conditions? I'm not sure. I cannot see how to do this in Russia, uh, taking into consideration what is now going on in Russia. Russia is not China, and uh, I think what we got was, for Latvia, best outcome possible. But he was not much of a democrat, of course. Yeah. Well, he's he's certainly best better than, than Mr. Putin here, and uh, this is a question... Just, just let's move a bit away from history. Um, I want to ask you about modern Russia right now, because I watch a lot of Russian economical channels, like on YouTube. Like I, I follow Stepan Demura and Dmitry Potapenko. I, you might have heard of these names. Uh, the kind of Russian opposition economists and, and Russian businessmen who speak out about their problems, and Dmitry Pronko, uh, but. About their issues, a lot of people say that right now Russia is going through something like a stagnation period where basically they're trying to 
Well, their latest statement was Lyudzinova Nefts, or the people are the new oil, which was kind of meant by the leader of Rosnano in the sense that we shouldn't be investing in oil, we should be building up our people. But everyone in Russia understood that, okay, you know, oil money is running out, time to, you know, start to take money from the people. But that's some black humor story. Uh, I would just like if you could comment on the economical situation, as, as far as you know, at least in Russia, as with their strictly export-based uh, raw resource economy with, um, with the Soviet Union, because a lot of Russian opposition journalists and economists draw these parallels. So are there any, or is Putin more like a Stalin figure instead of like a Brezhnev-Khrushchev figure who's like stagnating? Russia is uh, now, I think, quite different from Soviet Union. Uh, maybe not, not fully <laughs> functional, but here is market economy, here is private property, here is some uh, much higher level of uh, freedom, press freedom. You can go outside from Russia, you can, if somebody gives you a visa to United States or UK, you can go freely. In Soviet Union, you could not do this without uh, acceptance of uh, Communist Party. So Russia is uh, very different uh, from Soviet Union. Uh, it's a totally different uh, country. And uh, I'm not a big specialist on the economy of Russia, but if... Uh, Oil price is going up, then Russian economy is going better. It's okay. doing better. So how far? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I don't see any big success as well uh, that they are modernizing or uh, uh, becoming uh, less, uh, more independent of oil. No, they're just mm. the same economies, the same oil-dependent uh, raw materials independent so this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, another question. You used to be our Minister of Finances for a while in Latvia. And that's a question that has arrived because I posted on Twitter that I'll be interviewing you and some people, some people actually like wrote to me and asked. So one of the questions is, what does a Minister of Finances actually do? 
This comes from a libertarian listener who thinks there should be a very small government, but what, what's the quote? What do you actually did as a minister? <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, as, as a breather from all these historical themes, I, I kind of want to ask you maybe some of these more lighthearted questions, but they're important too, after all, because mm. we're, we're used to looking at politicians as these people from the outside who run things, so nobody knows what, you, what, what you're actually up to. Yeah, mainly it's time spent in different committees d discussing uh, things and then, you know, signing different documents where uh, minister's signature is needed, like sending a budget uh, to parliament. Oh, so you, you This were... is one of the most important things Minister of Finance does, signs a state bu government budget and sends to parliament and then tries to defend in Parliament. Oh, but you also come up in the committees with, with the whole budget, right? Yeah, with budget and all uh, other uh, things which supplement, yeah. like changes in taxes and... Uh, so the hardest, hardest part is to defend the budget in Parliament if you don't have enough uh, members of Parliament in support of you, if here is a strong opposition. Uh, budget is uh, made by... Uh, the people from departments and from other ministries, so minister cannot, you know, go into much of details. He can know framework. Mm. Uh, what is economy? How much of taxes we, we will get next year? And how much we can spend? How, uh, how big deficit could be? Uh, or no deficit? Uh, and then in general, how much we spend on health? How much we spend on military and etc etc mm. and then here always are demands you know and uh, teacher teachers are demanding uh, that wages how to be increased and doctors are demanding that wages how to be increased uh, etc yeah that is that is one thing that i've uh, it's also a major theme of my podcast that i always try to explain how you know um, how soviet union in the name, like how my father named it, was a whole, like a big, whole prison, just a gigantic prison. And that even though we escaped the prison, we couldn't lose the prison in our heads. Because, as I've mentioned previously on this show, it was often the case that my, my parents wanted me to grow up in this, this Atmoda era to become a nice, like a good person, enjoy capitalism. But they never kind of pushed me to start my own business. I did it on my own, but with my <laughs> podcast, and I can't even call that a business. It's, it's, it's something that I just do for for listeners, and I'm very happy that I'm making some money out of it. But it's more of a science work, I'd say. But uh, the problem is that I still up until today. Making your own business, which is a crucial part of the economy, at least here in Latvia, and not only in Latvia, and Eastern Europe in general, and I'm adding Eastern Europe as in post-Soviet bloc countries, here uh, a, be, being a businessman due to the early 90s is seen like some, something that's very risky, something that you shouldn't be maybe doing. Only in like very few latter years, two, three years, I've actually seen more advertisements, for example, for people to study business, but a lot of families here still hold on to the fact that you should, you know, you're, you, someone should become an engineer or a doctor so that they would become an employee for someone, for the government or something. Why so? Why, why don't we have more entrepreneurs? What, what, what would you say about this? Because I think it's some sort of post-Soviet thinking where 
and a lot of families still, even 25 years, more than 25 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we still haven't, I don't know, westernized in the sense that we need more businessmen taking responsibility. This is kind of, at least, that, that's the biggest issue that the Soviet Union has left us. How, how would you look at this? The, the fact that not enough people do make their own companies right now that we're, I think, at least not using our own full potential. Yeah, they, one is uh, fear of doing this. They don't have experience. Uh, if you don't have a lot of businessmen, so you don't have a lot of uh, uh, children who are uh, growing up in this environment. They don't know what does it mean. And then, of course, here is a higher barrier to enter uh, this world if you don't know about it. I hope it will improve in uh, in future, but sure, it's... Uh, post-Soviet uh, 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 heritage and uh, one generation cannot change it uh, totally, so it is. Hmm. I guess I'm going to have to raise my own kids a bit differently. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe. Uh, if, 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 another question. Um, can you tell me your favorite political Soviet anecdote? Yeah. You, can, you can tell it in Russian and I'll just translate yeah. it to you. I, I can... I can Immediately, I can recall this one. You know, in Soviet time, in Brezhnev's time, uh, policemen sees on uh, Red Square two older women who are looking around for something. He asks, what you are looking for? We are looking for principle. What is principle? This uh, shop which uh, Comrade Brezhnev told us that in principle, we have everything. <laughs> well, thank you. That was actually a great one. <laughs> thank you for both for being in our show and for helping our independence and for, you know, running our country for a while. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> Happy <Christage>. to do this. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, comrades. And I hope you enjoyed this interview. And next episode, we are going to move on Stalin's history, I think. Or maybe some, you know tales because I have accumulated some about how it's like to work in a telephone service and how actually all sorts of public services just plumbing and industry work in the Soviet Union haven't decided yet but it's one of these two thank you for listening to the eastern border if you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site theeasternborder.lv and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.